Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Thomas Crisp. On my view then, Muslims would be reasonable or rational in believing the inspiration of the Quran. Mormons would be reasonable or rational in believing the inspiration of the Book of Mormon, and so forth. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Thomas Crisp is an associate professor of philosophy at Biola University in Southern California. Today we'll be discussing his recent article on the divine inspiration of the Bible. Dr. Crisp, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, Tom, before we get into the Bible, would you mind sharing with us your own faith journey? Yeah. So I was raised in a Christian home. went to UCLA uh, for my undergraduate education. And while there, had a kind of crisis of faith. wasn't sure whether I believed Christianity anymore. wasn't sure why one should take it seriously. So I started reading around, discovered Christian apologetics, and thought some of it was better than others. And I ran across some uh, philosophical writing in the process and got to be friends with some students of philosophy at at UCLA and and eventually sort of settled my doubts about Christianity and then, too, just fell in love with philosophy in the process and and so have developed a a love of philosophy and and see it as as a way of living out my Christian life. So I think of myself as trying to be a follower of Jesus and I think that doing philosophy and helping others to think philosophically about Jesus's take on the world is a, is a way of following after him. I try to do philosophy as a follower of Jesus. Well, Thomas, I see philosophy of religion in at least two sets of arguments. There are arguments for broad theism, like the cosmological and teleological arguments, and they're pretty abstract, and I personally don't find them persuasive Uh, But I spend most of my time thinking about those issues. And then there are the arguments specifically for Christian theism, such as historical arguments for the resurrection of Jesus or arguments for divine inspiration of the Bible. And these are just so extreme for me that I honestly don't spend much time on them. The arguments for divine inspiration of the Bible in particular are hard to take seriously. They sound just like the Muslim arguments for divine inspiration of the Quran another ancient collection of writings filled with absurdities and contradictions and barbaric ancient morality. So I'll admit I mostly just kind of dismiss those arguments and don't really think about them very much. But I will say that I found your article on believing that the Bible is divinely inspired to be really interesting because you just apply the usual philosophical tools to this question that is usually just taken on faith. And so I'd like to start with some clarifications. When you're talking about how belief in divine inspiration of the Bible could be justified, what do you mean by justified, and what do you mean by divine inspiration, and what do you mean by Bible? So by talk of a belief being justified, I mean roughly something like this, uh, that, that the belief is reasonable, rational, intellectually, above board, proper from the intellectual or epistemic point of view, that sort of thing. Sure. So that's what it means to be justified. And then what do you mean by divine inspiration and what do you mean by Bible? Yeah. So by divine inspiration, I just have in mind the idea that God speaks through the words of Scripture, that Scripture has been authored by God, and that by way of its sentences, he speaks. He asserts various propositions. And then the expression, the Bible, I think of as ambiguous. It it means different things in different Christian contexts. So it refers in a Greek Orthodox context to one set of books and a slightly different collection of books in a Roman Catholic context, a slightly different collection yet in a Protestant context, and a different collection yet in an Ethiopian Orthodox context and so forth. There's quite a large bit of overlap in the books thought of as the Bible by these different parts of Christianity. But different Christians mean different things by the Bible. My tradition is the one of Protestant evangelicalism. So so as I use the expression, I, I mean it to refer to the 27 standard books of the New Testament and then the usual Hebrew canon. 
So in your article, you survey at least three options for how belief in the divine inspiration of the Bible could be justified. And the first one has been developed by Richard Swinburne. What is Swinburne's view on this issue, and what are some of the problems with it? So the argument I give in the paper, it's not exactly Swinburne's. It's inspired by his. It's and similar to his argument that the teaching of the Christian church constitutes a revelation from God. Okay. He develops this argument in his book, Revelation from Metaphor to Analogy. And, and the argument I discuss in my paper is similar to his. It's not exactly the same. But the basic idea of it uh, is to argue for the claim that the Bible is divinely inspired from premises that can be shown plausible on an evidence base that any reasonably intelligent well-informed person would accept. And the way you do this is you try to show first that those premises are probable on widely accepted evidence, and then second, that the claim that the Bible is inspired is probable on those premises. The premises that I considered and that I think give us the best hope of developing such an argument for the inspiration of Scripture are these. First, God exists. Uh, second, God intervenes in history to provide a revelation about himself, a propositional revelation about himself. Third, Jesus' teachings could be plausibly interpreted as implying that he intended to found a church that would function for a long time as an authoritative source of information about him. Next, Jesus rose from the dead. Next, in, in raising Jesus from the dead, God declared his approval of Jesus' teachings. And then finally, uh, the last premise is that the church that by the start of the 5th century had pronounced on which books of the Bible were divinely inspired is a legitimate successor of the church that Jesus founded. So I've got these six or seven premises, and the idea is to show that each of them is probable on widely accepted evidence. And then second, to try to show that the claim that the scriptures are inspired is probable on these premises. And the problem with this project, I try to argue in my paper, is this. So I think that these premises can be shown probable on widely accepted evidence. But I try to argue for somewhat technical reasons that you can't carry out the second part of the project. That is, you can't show that the claim that the scriptures are inspired is probable on these premises. And roughly the reason why that is, is this. I, I try to argue on probabilistic grounds that in order to do that, you need to be able to show that it's nearly certain that there's a probability near one on our widely accepted evidence base that God exists, and that the probability that God has intervened in history to provide a propositional revelation about himself, given that he exists and the rest of our evidence, you'd also need to be able to show that has a probability near one. And so on for the rest of the the premises, you need to be able to show that the probability that Jesus rose from the dead on our evidence and that God exists and, and so forth is, is near one. And, and I don't think you can do that. I, I think you can show that these probabilities are reasonably high in many cases, but I don't think you can show that they're near one. And thus, I argue that it follows that you can't show that the claim that the scriptures are inspired is probable on all these premises. Sounds something akin to what Planega called the problem of dwindling probabilities, where when you multiply you know, all these probabilities together and none of them are very close to one, the probability that they're all true ends up being kind of low? Yes, it's related to Planega's so-called problem of dwindling probabilities. That the way he explicates that problem, it only applies to arguments with a certain very particular kind of structure. I try to develop a more general version of his problem of dwindling probabilities and then show that it applies to arguments that have the structure of Swinburne's argument. And very roughly speaking, there's sort of a lot of qualifications and details, but very roughly speaking, yeah, the problem you raise is what afflicts this argument. That if these various conditional probabilities aren't very close to one, uh, when you multiply them together, as you need to do to arrive at a final probability judgment, the probabilities dwindle. And the, and the final probability judgment you end up with is that the claim that the scriptures are inspired on our premises and our total evidence is not far from 0.5 or a bit below that, I think. So that's a difficulty with Swinburne's approach to 
showing that divine inspiration of the Bible could be justified. Another option for trying to show that divine inspiration of the Bible is justified would be based on testimony, is that right? Yeah, so a lot of epistemologists have tried to argue that testimonial belief is properly basic. It is a, a basic belief is a belief you hold that you don't hold on the basis of any argument or inference. And a properly basic belief is a, is a basic belief which is properly held or, or one that you're justified in holding in the basic way. So, for instance, I think my belief that I have hands is properly basic. I don't have any argument that I have hands. When you really try to give an argument for it, it's very difficult to do. And yet I, I believe it. I don't think I hold it on the basis of any argument. Moreover, I think I'm rational and so believing I'm justified in believing I have hands. And so a lot of epistemologists have argued that testimonial belief, or at least a lot of it, is properly basic, that we're rational and justified in accepting quite a lot of belief on the basis of testimony from those around us, even if we don't have argument for it. And you might think maybe that's how we come to be justified in believing that the Bible is divinely inspired. You get it by way of testimony, testimony from people in your faith community or testimony from your pastor or priest or testimony from the church fathers or some such thing. And in the end, I defend a kind of version of this suggestion, but it needs to be nuanced taken straight up, there are problems. So though it's true that lots of our testimonial beliefs are properly basic, I think, your justification for accepting a given testimonial belief can be defeated or undercut when you run across counter-testimony. So for instance, suppose I don't know what time it is and I run into someone in the hallway and I uh, ask what time it is and they say, oh, they look at their watch and they say, oh, it's five o'clock. Then I think I'm justified in believing it to be five o'clock. But then I run across somebody a little further down the hallway and they say, oh, I just overheard him say it was five o'clock. That's not right. It's four o'clock. Now, provided I don't have any kind of evidence for preferring one of these folks' testimony uh, to the other, the fact that I've run across counter-testimony to the original testimony I got constitutes a defeater for my justification. I now, I think, should be agnostic about what time it is. Uh-huh. And so the, the general issue here is that when you have belief held on the basis of testimony, if you run across counter-testimony and you don't have any kind of argument or evidence for preferring one source of testimony to the other, then you get a defeater for your original testimonial belief. And if the way Christians get justified belief that the Bible is divinely inspired is just simply via testimony, the problem is that we've all got counter-testimony, unless you're living in a very isolated situation. There's all kinds of counter-testimony out there. There are people from other religious traditions that, um, that have the claim that other books are inspired and the Bible isn't. There are uh, practitioners of so-called historical biblical criticism who claim that the Bible is a mishmash of error and couldn't be divinely inspired. And, and then there's counter-testimony from within Christianity itself. So you have the, the Roman Catholic view according to which one set of books is inspired and Greek Orthodox view according to which a different set is inspired and and so it looks to me then, I argue in the paper, that the only way you could be justified in believing in the inspiration of the scriptures on the basis of testimony would be if you had some kind of argument for preferring one source of testimony over the others. But then the question is, what kind of argument might that be? I mean, uh, the, the Swinburne style argument, I, I claim, is, is, holds the best hope for being an argument for preferring some claim to the effect that the Bible is inspired. But I argue that that argument doesn't work. So if there is no argument for preferring one source of testimony about the inspiration of the scriptures to others, then plain old testimony must not be the story about how we come to be justified in, in believing what the Bible inspired, if indeed we are justified. Hmm. And then the third option is to say something like the belief in biblical inspiration is justified because the Holy Spirit tells us so. How would that work, and what are some of the difficulties for that view? Well, here I have in mind uh, what Alvin Plantinga calls the Aquinas-Calvin model of Christian belief. So the idea is that the way Christian belief works is via some cognitive process involving the Holy Spirit. Um, one way of thinking about it is when you hear the gospel preached, the Holy Spirit actually causes or produces in you belief in the claims of the gospel. And so the picture then is, I hear the gospel preached, and I'm, 
I have a kind of openness of heart. And then the Holy Spirit actually causes in me belief that Christ is Lord and died for my sins on the cross and so forth. So one possibility is that that's how belief in the inspiration of the Bible works, that you hear the gospel preached or maybe you're reading the Bible and and the Holy Spirit actually causes in you belief that these books you're reading are inspired. One difficulty with that is that within Christianity, as as I've already alluded to, there's quite a lot of divergence of view about which books are inspired. Mm-hmm. And so the trick is how to spell out how the Holy Spirit is working here. I mean, presumably the Holy Spirit isn't inspiring conflicting beliefs among Christians about which books are inspired. And so if the Holy Spirit is inspiring beliefs about which books are inspired, you get that some Christians are sort of hearing the Holy Spirit aright while others aren't. I suggest in the paper that there are sort of theoretical reasons for being uh, suspicious of that view. When you meet Christians from other traditions, other parts of Christianity, their beliefs about the inspiration of the Bible, you know, their belief that, say, First Maccabees is an inspired book, it sure seems like their belief about the inspiration of that book is awfully similar to my beliefs about the inspiration of the 27 mm-hmm. books of the New Testament. And since our beliefs are so similar, I argue there's a kind of theoretical cost associated with postulating different causes for our beliefs. So if I held that while my belief is inspired by the Holy Spirit, this Catholic friend's belief is coming from something else, I argue that to postulate dissimilar causes of such very similar phenomena it comes with a kind of theoretical cost. And that if we could find a way of understanding our belief about the inspiration of Scripture that didn't in- require us to postulate such dissimilar causes of very similar phenomena, that that would be a theoretical gain. So I try to offer a model that does not postulate dissimilar causes of these very similar beliefs about the inspiration of Scripture. And then how does that work? What I suggest is that the following is a very common phenomena in our cognitive lives. We accept a whole lot of testimony from experts, from those deemed expert by our social groups. So maybe the best case of this is accepting testimony from your parents. And then as we get older, our social groups get larger. And a great example of expert testimony that we'll often defer to as adults is the expert testimony of scientists and historians. And a facet of accepting the testimony of experts is we'll often defer to expert testimony in the face of conflicting evidence, even though we don't have any sort of good argument for preferring the expert testimony to the conflicting non-expert testimony. So as a child, I remember hearing things on the playground that conflicted with things my parents said, and and I would, without giving it much thought, reject those claims, continue accepting the testimony of my parents, even though I didn't have any kind of a decent non-circular argument for accepting my parents' testimony over testimony that conflicted with my parents. Mm -hmm. I run across folks that are considered um, out of the mainstream in history who make what would seem like kind of crazy claims about history. And I'll often reject those claims merely on the basis that it conflicts with what the historical experts say uh, without having much of a grasp on the relevant evidence. And likewise in science, there are folks who will say that the cosmos is extremely young, but some of these folks say things like, not only is the cosmos extremely young, but there's not even any evidence that the cosmos is old, that the evidence has all just been really badly misconstrued by science. There's a kind of massive ineptitude on the part of science at handling this evidence. And, and that I just don't really take seriously. It, it does seem to me that there is overwhelmingly powerful evidence. The cosmos is extremely old, you know, 13.7 billion years or something. But there's just very powerful evidence for that. And so I reject the uh, non-expert testimony to the effect that there's no good evidence for an old cosmos, but not because I have any kind of a really deep grasp of the physics involved. And I think I'm not alone here. I think we're all constantly in the practice of deferring to expert testimony, even in the face of conflicting non-expert testimony, without any kind of a decent non-circular argument for doing so. Moreover, we're perfectly justified in doing that. That is a rational, reasonable way to conduct one's intellectual life. That if it were a requirement on rationality that you had to go out and learn all the physics and and 
master all the history before you could defer to expert testimony in the ways I'm describing. Well, I think it couldn't be done. No one could master enough material. Probably no one has access to enough of the evidence to do that. And so no one could rationally hold any scientific or historical beliefs. And and so I I think that when you think about it, you'll see that it is perfectly reasonable to defer to experts in one social group, unless you have some reason to distrust them. I mean, if, if if you've come across evidence that they've misled you or that they're saying things that are that conflict with other evidence you're aware of or, um, and have good reason to accept. Uh, that's one thing. But I think in the absence of any kind of powerful evidence against the experts in your community, you're justified in accepting their testimony, even in the face of conflicting testimony by non-experts. And so I think that this kind of epistemological fact explains how it is that Christians come to be justified by and large and believing that the Bible is divinely inspired, I think what happens is one finds oneself in a faith community and it has its set of experts who uh, teach certain things about the inspiration of scripture. And the typical experience of the person in the pews is they accept the testimony of the experts in that faith community. And and yes, they're aware of counter-testimony, but the counter-testimony doesn't defeat the expert testimony because there's this process of deferring to expert testimony uh, operating in them. I think of this as a kind of hardwired process. I think this is a as a natural thing. We naturally defer to experts in our community, even in the face of counter-testimony by non-experts. That's hardwired into us, and it evinces what you might call proper cognitive function, that, that if our cognitive faculties are working the way they're supposed to, that's what we'll do. We'll defer to experts in our community. And that, in general, I think belief that arises from properly functioning cognitive faculties is epistemically justified. So therefore, I think that people in the pews who defer to the experts in their faith community about the inspiration of the Bible are justified in accepting those beliefs in just exactly the same way that you'd be justified in accepting the expert testimony of physicists about this or that and the expert testimony of historians about this or that. So that's my story about how we come to to be justified. Now, I should say, even though I show that there are problems with what you might call a purely natural theological approach to arguing for the inspiration of the scriptures, when I was talking about the Swinburne-inspired approach, Mm -hmm. I do think there might well be some folks who have decent arguments for the inspiration of scripture. I'm not positive you could get an argument going from the ground up, so to speak, it might be that you need to have some kind of religious belief that was justified not on the basis of natural theological argument, not on the basis of argument from evidence that just any reasonable person would assent to. So, for instance, if you suppose that belief in God works something like the way Calvin arguably thought it did, where you we believe in God not on the basis of any kind of argument, but it's sort of hardwired into us. We find ourselves beholding the starry heavens. We we uh, find ourselves confronting guilt uh, associated with our moral trespasses. And we just naturally find ourselves believing in God. Well, I think belief arrived at in that way. I think of such belief as perfectly epistemically justified. And if you've got a justified belief that God exists, then I think you might be able to get an argument like Swinburne's going. I don't think most people in the pews have such an argument. I think most people in the pews, the way they're justified in believing in the inspiration of the scripture is something like this authoritative testimony model I described a moment ago. But I think that there might well be some people who have a kind of Swinburne-esque argument. It's just that in order to, for such an argument to work, you, you couldn't start from the ground up. You couldn't start from premises that just anybody would accept. You would need some kind of starting point, like, say, the belief that God exists, that gets justified in the way that Calvin suggested. So all that to say that, though I think most Christians don't justifiably believe that the Bible is inspired on the basis of any kind of argument, I think you could give an argument. Well, of course, I think that the long list of propositions you gave uh, in the Swinburne model are all highly dubious, so I'm not so optimistic about that kind of argument. Um, but just sure. to be just to be clear on what you're saying, it sounds like you're saying that many Christians are justified to believe in the divine inspiration of the Bible because the religious authorities in their community have told them so. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, in much the same way that many people in our society are justified in believing there was a Big Bang because the scientific authorities have told them so. Right. So now on this model, wouldn't this entail that you know, Muslim laymen are justified in believing in the divine inspiration of the Quran because their religious authorities say so? Yes. Yeah, so a consequence of this model is that belief in the inspiration of the holy book particular to one's tradition is going to be produced in the same way across all different religious traditions. So the reason Muslims believe in the inspiration of the Quran uh, most of them, anyway, on on my view, would be that they've been taught that by authorities in their religious tradition. And the reason Mormons believe in the divine inspiration of the Book of Mormon is they've been taught that by authorities in their religious tradition. And so the explanation for having these beliefs is the same across religious traditions, but likewise, so is the epistemic status of these various beliefs. So on my view, then, Muslims would be reasonable or rational and believing the inspiration of the Quran. Mormons would be reasonable or rational in believing the inspiration of the Book of Mormon, and so forth. Uh, and then what about a non-believer who, you know, he happens to walk in a community of people who are experts about the Bible and the Quran, and they tell him that there's just no reason at all to think that either of these books are crafted by omniscient, omnibenevolent beings, would such a person also be justified in believing that these books are not divinely inspired? Yeah, quite possibly. I, I should say, yeah, so if you grow up in a community where, in which your primary social group is a group of skeptics, say, and uh, there are experts in your community or there are folks deemed expert by your community who uh, teach that all of the traditional religions are all bunk, uh, then yeah, you, you might well be justified in accepting their expert testimony in exactly the same way that the Christian is justified in accepting the testimony of the authorities in, in her tradition. I should say, though, that all of what I just said needs to be qualified by the idea that expert testimony is not, to use the epistemologist's term, indefeasible. So expert testimony is not incapable of being undercut by, by counter-evidence. Mm-hmm. So no matter what tradition you're part of and what, who your experts are, if, if you run across counter-evidence that is powerful enough, uh, it can call into question what your experts say. And, and if the evidence is powerful enough, it can render your belief in what the experts tell you unjustified. So one possibility is that someone in any one of these traditions we've been talking about starts off being justified in accepting the teachings of their experts and then runs across counter-evidence, and then they're no longer justified in accepting the teachings of their experts. So, you know, my role here is to express some of the thoughts that skeptics are going to have so that you can respond to them. I think one would be that what we've just illustrated with regard to Muslim communities by this model being justified in believing the divine inspiration of the Quran and Hindu believers uh, being justified in the divine inspiration of the Upanishads and, and so on. Doesn't this illustrate, since we're using the same model, but we're quote-unquote justifying lots of contradictory and mutually exclusive beliefs, doesn't this demonstrate why this type of approach is usually considered a fallacy in argument from authority, where just trusting something just on the basis of authority really isn't a good practice, and we shouldn't do it with regard to religious ideas, metaphysical ideas, scientific ideas, historical ideas, uh, because experts disagree, because testimony by itself is not sufficient to justify a belief. Doesn't this just make clear the problems with taking something on testimony? Well, I guess I don't think so. So it's important to be clear about what I mean by the word justified. I just mean that a belief is justified if it's rational or reasonably held. And it shouldn't come as a surprise that we can be rational or reasonable in holding conflicting beliefs. So you think about beliefs about science that our forebears held 200 years ago. A lot of those beliefs conflict with beliefs we hold today. Mm-hmm. 
but I take it we're justified in accepting a lot of what we accept today, and I, and I think they were justified in accepting a lot of what they accepted 200 years ago. So being just in believing something is, I think, compatible with there being other people, other evidential contexts, who are justified in believing something inconsistent with what I believe. It's not a cost to my view that we have conflicting beliefs which are justified. That, I think, is just a feature of our epistemic lives. Also, it would be wrong to describe what I'm doing as giving an argument from authority. So, you know, one of the sort of standard fallacies that you learn about logic is appeal to authority, and that's supposed to be a bad way to argue. And, well, sometimes it is a bad way to argue, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a great way to argue. But that's not what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm not giving an argument by authority that the Bible's inspired. I'm trying to give a model for how people come to be justified in believing that the Bible is inspired without argument. I mean, I think for most people, their belief that the Bible is inspired is not held on the basis of any kind of argument. Yeah. And yet I think that such belief is rational or reasonable in much the same way that many of us hold lots and lots of scientific and historical beliefs without any kind of argument. And yet I think lots and lots of those beliefs are perfectly reasonable and rational. Another strain of your question is, um, doesn't this show that we shouldn't accept historical and scientific beliefs on the basis of authoritative testimony? We should always do it sort of on the basis of argument. And, and I don't think it shows that. I think if you were to try to, if you were to sort of do the Cartesian project, do what Descartes did, sort of right. cast out of your mind everything that you've learned on the basis of authoritative testimony and decide you're going to start from scratch and you're going to only hold things that you can sort of show probable and evidence that's immediately available to you and doesn't rely on any kind of expert testimony, I don't think you'll get very far. There'll be very little left of science and history that you'll be able to accept. I think we're in a position where we just have to accept a lot of expert testimony uh, without any kind of decent non-circular argument on pain of being a historical and scientific skeptic. But I just don't think there's any reason to be a historical or scientific skeptic that, that I think the, the right thing to think is we accept quite a lot of testimony, quite a lot of expert testimony in the basic way, and, and that that's perfectly okay, epistemically speaking. When you were speaking about testimony earlier, you talked about how counter-testimony can provide a kind of defeater for the original testimony. And in a lot of scientific and historical disciplines, we tend to be more likely to accept something on the basis of expert testimony when the experts are fairly unanimous about something, uh, like the existence of the Roman Empire or the way that uh, the solar system is constructed or something like that, where there's very few objectors to that, and so it, sound, so it seems like we're justified in accepting the expert testimony without actually being familiar with the evidence our, ourselves. But in the case of religious expert testimony, it seems like that would be a paradigm case of lots and lots of counter-testimony to such a degree that no one uh, community of religious experts that's all claiming the same thing has anywhere near a majority of the expert testimony with regard to scriptures that are inspired or which God exists or that kind of thing. You know, there's no there's no religion that has even a, a simple majority of uh, testimony with regard to any of those propositions. So wouldn't that provide an, a significant defeater to all of these claims, at least to say that we couldn't get there through expert testimony and we'd have to seek an argument? Well, you know, much depends on how you think about the boundaries of your social group. So if you think of your social group extremely widely so that it extends backward into time, there's quite a lot of disagreement among the scientific experts in your social group. You know, past scientists look at things quite differently than do current scientists. And so there's a lot of uh, expert disagreement. Now, for various reasons, I tend to regard my primary social group as made up more so of my contemporaries, at least when it comes to scientific matters. So whether or not you have a mass of conflicting experts depends on how you draw the boundaries of your social group. And I think for most religious believers, they draw the boundaries of their r religious social group fairly narrowly so that it's not just the whole of Christianity that that one would consider one's primary social group. For many people, it's just their church or, or maybe just their denominational tradition. And for folks in that situation, there really isn't a ton of conflicting expert testimony. 
So I can understand why we would want to draw the line such that we're mostly listening to contemporary experts because we do seem to have a great deal more knowledge than our predecessors. Uh, you know, we're the ones driving cars, we're the ones exploring space. Uh, our knowledge seems to work a lot better than, than past knowledge. But in terms of drawing the lines around the experts that you're going to take seriously and, and drawing them so narrowly into your own community, that sounds like a really epistemically unwise practice. You know, I mean, you could say the same thing if you were a member of a, a cult and just say, well, this is my social group and I'm just going to, you know, I'm only beholden to listen to the experts in my little community that I drew these lines around. And that would leave you with you know, very little difference of opinion and also a lot of very incorrect information. And so it seems like an epistemically unwise practice to draw such narrow lines around the group that you're going to listen to and look for expert testimony from. We typically don't choose who we're going to regard as our primary social group. It's, it's something that sort of happens to us. And so once you end up with a community of people you're regarding as your primary social group, then I think it's natural to defer to its experts and that you're justified in doing so. Now, the kinds of considerations you're suggesting, I think, would come to bear if one were to try to give an argument. So suppose one started thinking to oneself, well, why do I accept the teachings of people in my tradition? Why aren't I listening to folks in other traditions? And then you start to try to give an argument that, well, my, my tradition is to be preferred to other traditions, then it seems to me you'd start to ask the kinds of questions you're asking. You'd start to say things like, well, maybe it's not so good to just listen to people in my tradition. I don't see that I have any kind of powerful argument for preferring my tradition's approach to things than these other traditions. Like, I don't have any powerful argument that the Catholics are wrong or that the Orthodox. And if one were to undergo such a course of reasoning and one couldn't marshal any evidence for preferring one's tradition to these other traditions, then I think the rational thing to do would be to start going agnostic about some of those particular teachings of your tradition, and, and you, sh you should start to wonder about what these other experts are saying. Well, I got to say, I just think that's, you know, intellectually irresponsible. We're all quite aware in the modern era of people who hold different views than we do, in fact quite a lot of them and quite a lot of really intelligent people who hold different views than we do. And so just as I think it would be irresponsible for a late 19th century philosopher in Vienna to mostly just take his hints on philosophy from the Vienna Circle and ignore what everyone else is doing, I think it would be intellectually responsible for someone to be aware of all these other religions out there and all these different worldviews that really smart people hold to, but to just say, no, I'm not going to listen to anybody outside my little circle that I happen to be born into. I, I would say that is what we do in general with regard to science or philosophy or religion, but I would say that's pretty intellectually irresponsible. Uh, do you, you disagree with that? I guess I do, yeah. I I think you find yourself in a place of doubt if you start really doubting the deliverances of your tradition. You start doubting your experts because you've run across some reason for doubting them. Then I think it would be irresponsible. But if you don't have any reason to doubt them, I guess I don't think it's irresponsible. In fact, I think we're all in exactly that situation. So there's all kinds of counter-testimony about the claims of mainstream physics. There are all kinds of fringe groups, even within the physics community. That's also true in history. There's all kinds of fringe groups making historical claims that go contrary to historical orthodoxy. And yet, I don't think in order to be justified in accepting the claims of the experts in history and physics, I need to go investigate all of the counterclaims. Otherwise, I think that would land us in historical and scientific skepticism. Well, but it seemed like we agreed earlier that we seem like we have more reason to distrust the, the expert opinion if there's a great diversity of opinions as opposed to extreme agreement like on the construction of the solar system or something like that and yeah there are fringe views but in a lot of these scientific cases they're in a minority and then where there is significant disagreement I think it is right for us to be agnostic like for example about which you know ultimate theory of everything is correct I, I think we're quite justified to be agnostic about that because the experts haven't honed in on any one that seems most likely yet 
i don't know i guess i just keep coming back to this worry that we're being intellectually responsible if we're aware of lots of other really smart people that disagree with us and we just say well no i'm just going to draw a line around the little community that i happen to be born into or happen to fall into and those are the only experts that i'm going to listen to and you know hinduism isn't a fringe group that's 900 million people you know atheism isn't a fringe group that's a billion people so I don't think you can really speak about the situation with regard to fringe groups either. And honestly, it seems like really cult-like behavior to draw such really narrow lines around the experts that you're willing to consider. And again, I agree that we do do that, but isn't there a worry that that's being intellectually irresponsible if you're just going to listen to the experts from the tradition that confirm your particular ideas uh, when there's not just fringe groups outside of your little community, but the vast majority of human beings and intelligent human beings outside of your little tradition. Of course, I agree that folks who reject Christian belief are not a fringe group. <laughs> but again, here's the situation we're all in. We all find ourselves in a social group that we regard as our primary social group, and we accept its expert testimony uh, without having good non-circular arguments for preferring our experts to the experts of other traditions. Now, one way of understanding your remarks is that's only okay if your social group is in the majority, that somehow you've got to perform a test to see whether your social group is in the majority and whether there's only just a small number of conflicting social groups. I just don't see it like that. I mean, you find yourself in a certain social group and you accept its views, and oftentimes you don't really know about how big these other social groups are. You, you know that there are other groups with other views, but you don't know much about how big they are. And in fact, how big they are seems utterly irrelevant to me. Imagine that the Nazis had won and that they'd converted a big chunk of the world population to anti-Semitism. I wouldn't start to think oh, maybe, maybe all these moral views I hold aren't, aren't really right after all. So it seems to me that the size of the competing social groups is epistemically not relevant. So if 99% of climate scientists thought that anthropogenic global warming was real and very urgent, that wouldn't be any different for you than if it was split 50-50? So, yeah, I mean, if I were sort of sitting there trying to assess probabilities, then it certainly would make a difference. But remember, I'm talking about beliefs not held on the basis of argument, but beliefs that are just naturally and spontaneously held because of one's social setting. Well, let's talk about, just real briefly, another kind of defeater for this belief in biblical inspiration. One, you know, would be the Bible itself. I mean, the Bible is filled with what most people would call absurdities and clear contradictions and moral evils. And the, I think the best explanation for those is that this is a collection of works written and revised over hundreds of years by many different authors with many different views about the world and about God, and a very different morality than we think is acceptable today. And I think that's a much better explanation for what the Bible says than the idea that it's filled with propositions being asserted by a perfectly moral, all-knowing God. Yeah, so a lot depends here on the question of biblical hermeneutics, so how you interpret the biblical text. And there's been a really wide variety of views about that over the course of church history. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, to say the least. <laughs> Starting in about, I, I think, a relatively recent uh, arrival on the scene in American fundamentalism, evangelicalism, is the insistence on a very literal hermeneutic. You take the text pretty much straight up. And uh, that's one view, but that's not the only view of folks who would accept the label Orthodox Christian. There are other approaches, so here are two others. One is that you take really seriously those so-called historico-grammatical method, where you interpret scripture in light of its cultural context. That's the second approach. And the third approach is one that a number of church fathers subscribe to, and, and that is that you interpret the Bible as a single book authored by God and you interpret parts of it in terms of other parts of it. And sometimes this suggests reading uh, some passages metaphorically. A classic example is the, the biblical book, The Song of Songs, which was read by many scriptural interpreters as a kind of 
metaphorical description of Christ's love for the church. Quite a common interpretation of that book through church history. I think the problems you're getting at arise sort of most dramatically on the wooden literalistic hermeneutic. Yeah. uh, That's where you get the most problems of the sort you talk about. I think things are much trickier. It's much harder to say whether there are problems of the sort you raise, given the two other approaches. So a good example is I was at a conference recently where Christian philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff read a paper in in which he gave a, a really detailed historical and literary case for the claim that the book of Joshua should not be read as straight-up history, that it should be read as a kind of hyperbolic hagiography, a hagiography, a sort of literature devoted to illustrating the virtues of some saint in the past, and that it involved the use of a lot of hyperbole in the way that other kinds of hagiography does. Meaning the ancient Israelites wanted to praise Joshua for several episodes of genocide? That's what they thought was praiseworthy? Well, no. So they thought other things about him were praiseworthy, and then they used the thought as a lot of hyperbolic language to describe how great a military leader he was. Huh. But the Walter Storff's suggestion was that a lot of this language, including the language of the wiping out of men, women, and children, a lot of this language would have been understood, the suggestion is, in the, in the original historical context, to be hyperbole, to be not straightforward, not straight-up reporting of history. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to make of that. I mean, I don't know the literary and genre considerations well enough, but it strikes me that you could have a very high view of Scripture and think that a lot of passages that give trouble, if read in a straightforward and literalistic way, when read in light of their original genre, aren't nearly as problematic. Now, Thomas, you teach at Biola University, which is a leader in training PhD-carrying Christian apologists. How do you see the role of the philosopher and the role of the apologist? Are they different? I guess so. I would think of the relationship between them as something like the relationship between the physicist and the uh, pure mathematician. So the pure mathematician cranks out a lot of pure mathematics that some of which has practical use, some of which doesn't, but is working on the pure theoretical issues. And then the physicist comes along and appropriates the results of that pure theoretical work and applies it for practical ends. And I guess I think of the relationship between the philosopher and the apologist as something like that, but the, the philosopher is working on these pure theoretical pursuits, some of which have practical uses, some of which don't, and uh, the apologist comes along and appropriates parts of it and puts it to use trying to mount a defense of Christianity against objections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, by the way, it seems like there's a great spectrum of what apologetics is. So sometimes apologetics comes from very open-minded and seeking the truth type of people who are defending the view that they've come to think is most reasonable, just like you know somebody might defend nominalism about abstract objects and their you know, they're, a, they're an apologist for nominalism. Um, I, I don't see anything unusual about that. But then there's a kind of apologetics that is pretty popular in evangelical Christianity that's sort of associated with people like William Lane Craig, where, you know, Craig explicitly says that he's immune to argument and evidence, and he will use it to convert souls to Jesus, but there isn't any possible argument or evidence that would convince him that his inner feelings about the Holy Spirit are wrong. Even if he went back in a time machine and saw, you know, Jesus' dead body not rise, he would still believe on the basis of his inner feelings. And that seems to me like a kind of extreme intellectual irresponsibility and that's the kind of apologetics that that really concerns me where people are willing to take even after everything we know about psychology and neuroscience people are willing to take their inner feelings so seriously that they're literally and admittedly immune to argument and evidence and I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion on that branch of Christian apologetics for most Christians, part of what's grounding their belief is religious experience. I think most Christians don't hold Christian conviction purely on the basis of probabilistic reasoning, natural theological arguments, and so forth. I think 
most Christians, many of their Christian beliefs are held on the basis of a very powerful religious experience, which suggests to them the truth of Christianity. And belief held on the basis of powerful experience, which makes it seem obvious to one as if something is true, will oftentimes have a very high bar in the following sense. It will take quite a lot of counter evidence to dislodge me from holding on to that belief. Mm-hmm. The example is that, is that I find it just morally unbelievably obvious that racism is wrong. I have this powerful moral intuition and moral experience of the world, which suggests very strongly to me that racism is wrong. And so someone were to come along and give me arguments, you know, that I should hold this or that racist moral view. It would take a lot to dislodge my moral beliefs because they're held on the basis of this very powerful experience. And so some apologists might have that kind of view in mind. I mean, they might think, well, what's really grounding my belief here is this powerful experience. And so it's going to take a lot of evidence to to counteract the epistemic force of that experience. I guess I don't have a lot of sympathy with the idea that no amount of evidence could do the job. You know, even my belief that I have hands and have a body under the right course of experience that seems to me like that could be given counter evidence sufficient Mm -hmm. enough to dislodge me from from even that belief. But I I guess I do want to say I think that there is a danger in apologetics and in the apologetical community. I think we should be very cautious about doing apologetics in the spirit of rhetoric, where we're not putting forward arguments because we think they're good arguments, but we're putting them forward because we think they'll persuade whether or not they're good arguments. It would be a very dangerous thing, it seems to me, to do apologetics thinking that the only thing that matters is that I can convince people. It doesn't really matter whether I'm putting forward good evidence or not. Mm-hmm. That kind of apologetics, I think, probably happens sometimes, and, and that does everyone a disservice, I think. Well, that's great. I think that's a passion that we really share, and it comes from both angles. And so on my website, I'm constantly trying to explain the problems with some really common atheistic arguments that I don't think have any merit, and I really want people to stop using them for a number of reasons. One, because I want them to be epistemically responsible, but also just as a practical matter, <laughs> it makes the job of Christian apologists very easy to, for example, criticize the new atheists and say something like, well, see, this is the quality of the new atheist argument, so you don't really have to pay attention to them. Uh, <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's not very useful to some causes that I have interests in. Sure, sure. Right. It, it doesn't do any side of this debate any good to be putting forward bad arguments just because they have rhetorical force. But I think it's also a moral issue. And I think, I think it's a matter of respect. We, we ought to be deeply respecting one another. And, mm-hmm. and using merely rhetorical arguments, I think, manifests a kind of lack of respect for people. So, Thomas, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it.